Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, here we are, the uh, podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead. This is the very first uh, Facebook Live or Live of Any Kind podcast that I've done. So uh, thanks for folks for bearing with us for being a little bit late and to my guests for, for being here. I'm going to give them each a brief introduction and then if they've got more they want to add uh, to that, that would be uh, fine with me. And then we're going to ask them to share a little bit about their stories before they uh, start uh, having the conversation. Uh, my guests today, I have had them each on separately uh, here on the podcast before. First is Darren Dirksen of uh, Fresno Pacific University, and Darren has been on before. We talked about uh, Sikhism, and uh, Darren's got some experience uh, teaching in that regard and living amongst them in India as well as uh, Hindus, uh, so he brings a lot of background to this conversation. And then we have uh, Fred Stella, who has been on a couple of times. Uh, as we talk about, in fact, uh, Fred was responsible for helping us crack in, uh, the record for uh, views on YouTube with over 18,000 views for uh, the uh, American Hinduism conversation that we had. Uh, Fred does a lot of things. He's involved in interfaith dialogue. Uh, he sits on the, on the board for the Hindu American Foundation. And so, uh, Darren and Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Great, Great to be thanks. here. Thanks. Good to be here. It's good to have you guys here. This is the first part uh, of a series of conversations that uh, we will be having as we explore different facets of uh, Christian Hindu conversation. We have been involved in a number of private conversations uh, for the last uh, couple of months, several months, uh, because of our mutual interest in seeing Christians and Hindus get together for conversations. And uh, so we wanted to explore that, develop relationships amongst ourselves. And ideally, I think we'd like to see members of churches and uh, temples and local communities get involved. But until that happens, uh, we thought, why not have a series of online conversations uh, to show folks uh, the possibilities of what, of what might happen? So before you guys begin your conversation, if you would each uh, take a few minutes and just kind of share a little bit about your story in terms of how you came to embrace your most deeply held beliefs and how that's transformed you and prepared you for these conversations. Darren, let's start with you. Yeah. Well, again, thanks, John, for this opportunity. And, and Fred, it's so good to be able to share this space with you. I'm looking forward to our discussion, our, our dialogue. Um, yeah. So for myself, I call myself an, an evangelical-leaning Anabaptist Christian. So there's a lot of qualifiers <laughs> in that. Um, so I am Christian. And um, and I, I say evangelical-leaning because I resonate with certain aspects of what have come to be known as evangelicalism. And then there's other th aspects of that that I, I don't and, uh, and I critique. And so I, I don't comfortably call myself full on evangelical, but by, but I'm certainly, um, you know, influenced by it and, and connect with, with it in many, many ways. I'm also Anabaptist now. That means that's this one particular tradition within Christianity that goes back several hundred years. 
that really emphasizes particular focus on things like peacemaking, on, on discipleship, on a really important on lived, a lived life that really reflects what we believe and on community. So, um, so those are some things I bring as well. Um, I, yes, I teach at Fresno Pacific University. I teach in what's called intercultural and religious studies. And uh, how have I come to embrace my deeply held beliefs? So there's probably, a, there's few different moments in my life. Um, life is sometimes made of moments. It's amazing. And you look back and you realize, wow, these particular points, what if it had been different? Um, and it wasn't. It's what happened and and interesting how those kind of shape us so you know certainly one uh was when i was young i was i was brought up in in a uh, mennonite evangelical church and um and so i was taught from early on the importance of having a personal relationship with jesus christ uh, with god through jesus and uh you know grew up hearing that and and then when i, I remember when i was nine years old I was, uh, I was listening to a, a message and was invited to make this personal commitment uh, to, to Jesus. And, um, and so I did so. And, and it was this very simple nine-year-old kind of way of, of uh, agreeing with what I understood, that who Jesus was, that he had died for me, that I could receive forgiveness. Um, and for what it was, I, I, I look back on it and I think, well, it was a nine-year-old little decision. And yet, um, no, it was also significant. And it has, I have since understood it with greater and greater depth and meaning about what really was happening there. And yeah, it was a moment and it was the beginning of a journey. And so that journey continued throughout high school, college, um, constantly making decisions about what this meant for my life. Was I going to re-embrace Christianity and this life with Jesus, or was I not? Um, sometimes kind of going back and forth as you do throughout your teenage and early 20s. Um, but ultimately affirming that, no, I, 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 I believe that this is an important way of life that shapes me and gives me meaning. And God through Jesus gives me meaning. So I um, continued that way. I'd say another moment was after college uh, in the classic post-college, what do I do with my life kind of moment of uh, decision-making. I did some volunteer work with the Christian Mission Discipleship Organization. And um and actually was given the opportunity to go to the country of India. And I had never really considered going to India. Um, and uh, in the preparation for that, I was wrestling with, should I extend this volunteer work that I was doing or should I um, go back home and get a job and and things and and I felt through a moment of prayer uh, that God was really challenging me to have a greater to risk it to to risk and it wasn't just about India it was just kind of a mode of life of saying you know what I I don't have to always go with the safe journey uh, that a life with God is also one that calls me to risk and to serve others. Um, and that moment, it was this opportunity to kind of go and see what God was doing, uh, serving him in another country in, in India. Well, that turned out to be a very profound moment and, uh, and trip. And, um, and then also 
really opened me up to uh, greater realities of what uh, other religions and my first exposure to Hinduism. So, um, you know, from there, I, I'd say there was just various other parts of the journey and probably I'd characterize other moments along the way as, and I'll tie this now into our multi-faith piece. And, and this is that relationships have been key. So whether in India, whether back here in the U.S., making relationships with people of other faiths has been really transformative to me. Um, not threatening, but actually transformative. And, and seeing uh, like through people like Fred and others, uh, just the way in which uh, they have been, they, they have so much to share with me, so much profound truth, uh, love, experience. I don't have to be closed off of that. And in fact, it deepens my faith in, in who God is. So that, that's been another big piece that's been probably the last you know, 15, 20 years or so of, of growth in that area and has helped me embrace that you know, God is at work in a lot of different ways. And I still have my, my, my core convictions about the importance of Jesus. Thanks, Darren. I appreciate that. And the reason why we're, we're starting off like this rather than just jumping right into the questions is, is that, as you said, this is about relationships and this is, isn't about disembodied ideas. It's about people uh, in relationship who have agreements and disagreements about some of the most important things in their lives. And so it's important to ground that in your personal experiences as to how you came to embrace what you hold dear. Uh, Fred, would you share a little about about your life journey? Sure. And if I forget, I have a question about what uh, Darren said at the beginning of his introduction, and um, uh, I, I need some edification. But uh, as far as my background goes, I was born and raised in a Roman Catholic family. I'm Italian-American, and so you probably know that being Italian and being Roman Catholic kind of go hand in hand. Um, and I actually really enjoyed my upbringing. Uh, but I did start questioning some of the major tenets, not just of Catholicism, but of Christianity in general, uh, right around the time I was 12, 13 years old. Now, this sounds extremely trite and cliche, forgive me, but when the Beatles went to India in 1968, that had an effect on me. I've always been a big Beatles fan. Uh, but just because a rock and roll group goes to India and spends several months in the ashram, uh, you know, people don't usually change their lives over that. And it certainly didn't change mine overnight. But here's the thing. I didn't know about meditation when they went over there. But when I did learn about meditation when they were there, of course, they had a tremendous amount of press coverage while they were there and after they returned to England and all of that. It brought to mind something that I hadn't thought about in a long time. And that is when I was rather young, I would say probably somewhere between maybe four, five, six, seven years old, I would spontaneously meditate. I wouldn't have known what to call it. If you walked into a room and there I was sitting in a chair with my eyes closed. If you asked me what I was doing, I would have no idea what to tell you. But I was experiencing something rather profound. 
And so when I learned what meditation was, I thought, okay, it's a thing. <laughs> it's, it's something that some people do. And of course, people can meditate in any tradition. It's not exclusively Hindu, but uh, I did take a comparative religions class in my sophomore year at my Catholic high school. And when we learned about the tenets of Hinduism, it just seemed to resonate with me. I didn't have a great aha moment and immediately embrace the whole tradition right then and there, but it did lead me to explore. I decided to go to my very first Hindu temple at the age of 15. And uh, it was a very positive experience and I returned here and there. I still maintained my identity as Catholic. If you asked me what I was, I would have said, I'm Catholic. Uh, you know, the fact that I was committing heresy on the side, I, I didn't know anything about that. But regardless, uh, I was still going to my Catholic school. I didn't say, mom, dad, take me out of this. I never said, I will stop going to mass with you. Because the, the people at the temple were very pluralistic and they were talking about acceptance of, of all religions and of Jesus being a great master, one who could be followed. So I thought, okay, then I'll continue to do that. It wasn't until my uh, uh, early 30s that I, I formally embraced uh, the Hindu Dharma. I, I liken it to uh, uh, that person, and there are many of the, the, this, uh, this gentleman that I'm going to describe uh, all over the world, right? Someone who is uh, born in um, a typical American family or a typical, typical family anywhere, and they are programmed to like girls. And so they go to school, they date, they may even get married, but perhaps one day they wake up and realize that they've been living an untruth. And they say, you know what? Who am I kidding? I am gay. It was kind of like that with me because I resisted being a part of the Hindu community to, to take on that, that identity of being Hindu for a long time. I would call myself spiritual, but not religious or a Zen Catholic, which I don't even know what that is, but it seemed to fit at the time uh, until finally I, I woke up and realized, no, uh, I need to join the community. I need to, to uh, jump in feet first because a significant part of religion is community. And sure, I can sit in the corner and meditate all day long, well, actually, I can't uh, under nor normal circumstances, but you know what I'm saying. But part of the experience of religion is community. It's being able to be served and to serve. So in my mid-30s, I did formally embrace the Dharma, as we say, and uh, that has been over 30 years ago. And uh, I am the ordained pracharic. I should uh, mentioned that uh, I, I I did join the dark side. I'm clergy, um, so so uh, I was ordained by the West Michigan Hindu Temple as a pracharic. A pracharic is not a priest. A pracharic is more like a minister in that I deal with uh, teaching and I deal with counseling. I deal with pastoral care, um, and uh, you mentioned I'm also. 
uh, I, uh, you, you said the board, it's actually the National Leadership Council, which works under the board of the Hindu American Foundation. So I do uh, a lot of work with advocacy and interfaith work and education. I think I said education. Anyway, uh, no, advocacy, education, and community. Those are the three areas that we, uh, we focus on. And I'm here. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, since you joined the dark side uh, as a Pracharic, did you get training in the dark side of the force or did that come later? <laughs> Some would say that. Some would say, Some that. Would say that. Of course. Now, Fred, you had a, a question, a follow-up from Darren's story? There? I, yes, yes. I, uh, this, is, this is confusing to me. If I met someone and I asked what their religion was, and he said, he could say, well, I'm a Franciscan, or I'm a Jesuit, or I'm a Dominican, but I lean Catholic. I wouldn't understand that because all Jesuits, all Dominicans, all Franciscans, to the best of my understanding, are Catholic. I, have, I don't understand being a Baptist that leans evangelical. I thought all Baptists were a part of the greater evangelical family. So I would, I would love to be edified. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think, um, so I guess I think of that in two different ways. Organizationally, um, well, even there, my, so the church that I'm a member of is a Mennonite and our particular branch is Mennonite brethren. So historically we are not, we wouldn't, we don't often uh, align with a lot of the same alliance around one. We're not in the same organization, networks, denominations as some of the classic Anabaptist, uh, sorry, evangelical churches like the Southern Baptists. So um, now having said that, a lot of Mennonites listen to evangelical pastors online. They, you know, we're, we're influenced by them. Some of our own pastors were educated in Baptist colleges and seminaries. So there's a lot of influence from the more self-described evangelical uh, denominations. So, um, yeah, so as a denomination, we don't really sit comfortably usually with that title in that sense. Um, and then I say leaning because when it comes to beliefs or emphases, that's where I kind of uh, go more. I, I embrace certain things about the evangelical stance. I, the personal, the personableness of God and relationship with God, I think is a real strength in, in, the, in the tradition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the emphasis on text can be sometimes a weakness, I think, in what it leaves out. And yet there's just a real strength. I mean, the amount of textual study and and uh, doctrine that has come through evangelical uh, teaching and emphasis I, I there's a lot of it I really love so um, you know and any and several other things and then there's some other aspects that um, I don't and particularly probably the more popular associations of evangelicalism, maybe when it gets into the broader culture and politics and stuff, some of the things that evangelicals, which we'll probably touch on here, uh, the, some of the things that they get associated with, I, I disagree with. I wish I could distance myself from some of those associations. I, I am aware that there are a lot of people who self-identify as evangelical, 
but they always qualify that you have to understand what I mean. And I don't mean Jerry Falwell. You know, okay. I don't mean that wing of it. I, I'm fully aware of, uh, of uh, Jim Wallace's work. Uh, you know, he is a self-described evangelical. So I know that it doesn't always mean that you um, are on the conservative political end of the spectrum. Mm, yeah. Or, or, or necessarily the, the religious end of the spectrum, the, the conservative end of the religious spectrum. Right. Yeah. No, there's any number of things. I mean, there's, I would call myself probably more progressive evangelical mm -hmm. and uh, that's, that's a, that's a, and there's more and more, well, there's more and more progressive evangelicals. And then there's more and more people who are progressive who just say, I, I can't stay evangelical anymore, you know, and I'm saddened by some of that uh, in terms of self-identification. They're still where they're at in, and I would say they still lean in a lot of ways with evangelical, but they just would not feel, they don't feel comfortable self-identifying as evangelical any longer. Thank you. Well, I'm going to turn it over to you gentlemen. Uh, the, the focus is looking at how the different religious communities come at the question of love. And Darren, since during our phone conversations, uh, you were the one who came up with this idea and this approach. Uh, maybe you could kick us off and then you two can have a conversation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It just struck me, you know, and, and Fred, as you and I were talking and, and we were all having this discussion, um, you know, one, one thing that a lot of religions share in common is a focus on love and, and in our quest for seeking commonality and points of commonality, sometimes that's one, you know, Hey, we should all love our, our communities. We should love our neighbors. We should take interest. And, and if nothing else, we can join together um, in maybe some practical action around that, or at least in agreeing that these are some really important things. Um, and then in my work with interfaith organizations, sometimes, and particularly maybe more, uh, you know, community-based, they're trying to do different actions. It kind of stops there. We don't, you know, we don't explore further because then from there, maybe it gets us into some of the differences between why we love, what are the, what are the backgrounds, what are, what are, it, what are the things from our own religious traditions that motivate us to love? And, and we don't really go there, again, because that probably calls out more differences between the traditions. And yet, I think that's a really helpful thing to explore. I would love to hear more from different religious traditions about what from your tradition calls you to love? What is love? What does that look like? What is it leading towards? We may not agree, uh, you know, on, on those points, but I would just love to hear more reflection on that and discuss that. So that's really where it came out, where I, where I was coming from on that. I, I appreciate broaching this subject. And let me say right up that I wholly agree and have for years in my interfaith work uh, uh, encouraged thick dialogue. Hmm. If we keep on the surface, nobody's going to learn anything, right? Uh, and exactly what you say, if we can talk about love to a certain degree, then all of a sudden, ooh, <laughs> ooh, we might, we might have a debate here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, someone telling me they were involved in an interfaith group and it was Abrahamic. So there were uh, three couples, uh, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim. And 
they were they would all talk about they would have a subject every time they they met and one night the subject was Jesus and things got very tense because of the three different takes that the religions have on the person of Jesus. And I, and I thought to myself, why in the world should there be any tension? If you're simply educating uh, one another, this is what Islam says about Jesus. This is what Christianity says about Jesus. This is what Judaism doesn't say about Jesus. Right? I mean, and, and, and let it go. So no, I'm more than happy to uh, get involved um, again in the, in the thicker elements of, uh, of what we're talking about. Uh, so your question specifically on what does love mean in Hinduism is, is, are, are we starting there? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think that'd be, if you're okay with that, John, we can kind of yeah. dive in. Um, I know that, um, yeah, obviously every tradition sort of has some of its own teachings. And for Hinduism, there's things like bhakti and, and probably a host of others that I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, that, that talk about love and devotion to deity or to, to yeah. some higher power. Um, and then maybe, and this is where you can perhaps help me, maybe then also by extension to others, uh, you know, that, that make those sorts of connections. So yeah, what are some of the traditions uh, or concepts that provide Hindu uh, Hindus like yourself a guidance for for loving others, deity and and others. Certainly, certainly. And see, this is why I'm I'm dialoguing with Darren because he doesn't say bhakti; he says bhakti, the true pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Little uh, Hindi coming out. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's let's start with with bhakti. Um, in in Hinduism, there is uh, th there are six major philosophical schools, and one of those philosophical schools is yoga. Now, of course, in the West, when we think of yoga, we think of postures and breathing exercises and and all of that, and that is. Hatha yoga. And Hatha yoga is a wonderful system for health. It's a wonderful preparation for deep meditation, but it is not the be all and end all. As a matter of fact, it is a minor part of yoga. Yoga means union. So the goal of yoga, of any form of yoga, uh, is to unite one with the divine. Uh, the four main yogas are Raja Yoga, which is meditation, Jnana Yoga, which is uh, a pursuing wisdom, and Karma Yoga, which is selfless service. And then there is Bhakti Yoga. Bhakti is the yoga of devotion. Uh, that is to express one's deep personal love for God in any number of activities. Um, it could be through chanting, simply chanting the names of the various names of God on a, on a regular basis. Uh, it could be through silent communion. It could be through visualization. And it could be through seeing the divine in every human being and yeah, every sentient being. 
that you come in contact with. When you walk out into the garden and see the flowers, if that, if that generates love in your heart and know that the flower comes from God, that's bhakti yoga. If you see the weeds and realize that comes from God, that's bhakti yoga. When dealing with challenging human beings, no, no matter what the situation, if in your heart, even in the midst of, of rancor, in, in the midst of anger, you can see the divine within them and fully understand that that, that presence is there and to act accordingly. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to back down. It doesn't mean that you have to apologize. It simply means that you know that that divinity is there. And you may not be expressing devotion at that moment outwardly, but just having that inner understanding that divinity is present here, that is all bhakti yoga. And in bhakti, you you can visualize the uh, divinity. I'm sorry, I have a cranky cat and I'm really going to try to see the divinity in that <laughs> as best I can. <laughs> uh, Great application. <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> right on cue. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, believe me, I have no problem seeing the divinity in my kitties. I love my kitties, <laughs> even when they're a little bit cranky. Um, but uh, if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider becoming a part by sharing on social media, clicking like, and visiting our patrons page and website donation page. You can find the links on the program notes and YouTube comments. Thank you for your partnership. Now back to the program. We can, we can visualize God in any number of forms. And I know that we'll get to that later. So we can, we can express a parental love to God. We can express a, a filial uh, love to God. We can express uh, even a, a more conjugal love to the divine. Uh, and, and all is accepted according to our Hindu scriptures. And we are called to love. In the Bhagavad Gita, uh, I should say spoiler alert because it happens at the very end. In the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna says to Arjuna, and Lord Krishna represents God in this case. He says, fly to me, love me, adore me. Uh, and this is the final this is the final message. So for people who are not uh, familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, it's 18 chapters. It's actually uh, 700, uh, uh, yeah, 700 words, is it? Um, yeah, it's, it's a part of a much greater scripture called the Mahabharata. And in it, the, uh, in the middle of the Mahabharata, you have these 18 chapters uh, that extol the uh, or impart the greatest knowledge of Hinduism in condensed form. And so in the 18th chapter, after the first 17 chapters, where all of this other knowledge is imparted about the nature of God, the nature of humanity, correct living, meditation practice, all of this, the very end, it's like, you know what? 
if, if you can't meditate, don't worry about it. If you can't uh, render service, don't worry about it. You can always just love me. And, and me, in this case, again, Krishna is a representation for God. So, so yes, we are directed very firmly to establish a loving relationship, both with deity and uh, all sentient beings as well. So maybe I could follow up on that with another question that I ponder uh, and you and I kind of had some email around this a little bit too. Anyways, I've, um, and, I, and I think I know there's diversity within Hindu traditions when it comes to understanding the nature of, of God and of divinity. Mm-hmm. So there's probably no one, one, there's no one answer perhaps to my, no. my, my question here, but is, you know, when, uh, so from a kind of an Abrahamic, in a Christian perspective, we have a very distinct understanding of, of we are people who are different than God. God is a different being and he's created us. And for us, that really helps conceptualize love because um, I, because I, I can just relate to that. I, I love my wife who is a very, who is a completely different being than me. And so love for me equates to distinct beings, persons relating to each other. Now in Hinduism, that line kind of shifts and shifts and 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 changes a little bit depending on the tradition, uh, and maybe even within bhakti, of yes. uh, you yes. know, to what degree are we loving something different, someone different? To what degree are we loving a whole of which we are a part? And that I don't know how important that is, but it just intrigues me because I try to conceptualize what does love look like in that regard? Don't think too hard. It really can give you a headache. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I haven't really formulated a question, but maybe you you get what I'm talking about. I I do. And, And so that question leads to this question. Are you Advaita? Are you Vaita? Are you, um, uh, are you qualified Advaita? I am sorry. <laughs> uh, All right. I'm happy to to take two seconds to sequester her if if it gets too crazy. I'm I'm more than happy to do that. Um, anyway, uh, so there there would be three ways, and you can subdivide those three ways uh, into into tiny little pieces as well. But uh, so, for instance, I would say that. Uh, all Abrahamic traditions are dvaita, meaning dual, meaning an understanding that there is me and there is God and never the twain shall meet, at least in terms of full union, uh, recognizing uh, a, a oneness. Uh, and yes, some Hindus do subscribe to dvaita philosophy. Um uh, dualistic philosophy. A lot of uh, um, Westerners are familiar with the Hare Krishna movement. Okay, especially people of a certain age who go back to the uh, 60s and 70s. That uh, was for a time uh, one of the most popular Hindu movements around. And they were very and are very clearly Dvaita or dual. 
So when they express their devotion, they are expressing, expressing their devotion to an other, an entity, a deity that they will never fully be absorbed into or have the realization that that, that is who they are. Then you have qualified Advaita. And qualified Advaita uh, uh, is that uh, philosophy that says, there is a spark of the divine within me. I am related to the divine, and yet there still is some difference between me as an individual and God, the absolute. And then, of course, you have Advaita, unqualified Advaita. Um, and that is, that is my school. Uh, it, it, you know, any, uh, any opportunity to claim myself as being unqualified, I have to take because I'm pretty unqualified in everything. So I might as well be unqualified in my understanding of divinity. Uh, so that school essentially says that, yes, creation and by creation, we're talking about the physical universe. We're talking about every soul of every sentient being, etc., is an expression of divinity, not a separate creation from divinity. And so you're absolutely correct to think, well, how can you, uh, how can you express devotion to an entity that you are actually a part of? And I will do my very best to um, explain it. Um, as soon as you explain to me how Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, <laughs> and how you have one God, but three persons in that God. <laughs> we have our mysteries. And, huh? and, and, and if you were Catholic, I'd, I'd also ask you, it's both bread and the body of Jesus? <laughs> okay. Right, right. Um, in, in Hinduism, there is a lot more both and as opposed to either or, which you find in most Western traditions. Mm -hmm. But you do have your both ands, as I've just explained, the, 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 the examples that I did. And, you know, you could just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's a mystery and we're going to find out someday. So when it comes to understanding the nature of God and the nature of, of who we are in, in and with that, uh, that deity, uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, while we are still in this human condition, uh, while we are still uh, not experiencing that wholeness, that complete fullness of divinity within our lives. So I'll, I'll be the first to say, I don't, I may have a belief that I am one with the divine, but unless it grows into complete fulfillment that I experience being part of the divine, then by all means, I am encouraged to still have that loving relationship. And here's a, uh, here's a, a lovely little story. Uh, there was a 19th century saint by the name of uh, Sri Ramakrishna. 
And Ramakrishna was a, a, a completely unqualified Advaitin. He believed that that uh, what we what we say aham brahm asmi divinity and I are one. And yet, he continued to be this major bhakta, one you know, or bhakti yogi. He, he, he that's that's what he did, and he would perform these loving rituals to God, particularly in the form of the Divine Mother Kali. And he would sing to Kali as if he would sing to his earthly mother. Uh, and he would act so sweet and childlike in these devotional practices. And one day, one of the devotees asked him, he said, you know, sir, you are completely at one with the divine. You, uh, you know, we see you go into samadhi, this, this absolute bliss uh, uh, where one actually realizes the oneness. And yet you continue these bhakti practices, you know, treating God as an other. How do you rectify that? And he simply smiled and said, sometimes I like to taste the sugar. Sometimes I like to be the sugar. Hmm. Now, we, I, I'm not, I'm not speaking for anybody else here. I cannot completely conceive of the ability to move my consciousness from same to other, same to other. Hmm. It is a belief that I have, but it's not a realization that I have completely. I will admit there are times in meditation where I felt that I'm moving in that direction. And so my belief is, is uh, encouraged by that movement that I feel, but it's not complete. So I maintain it as a belief. And in Hinduism, belief only gets you so far. It's encouraged as a starting point, but it's not the end. So I often say I, uh, I, I don't. Uh, my faith isn't faith-based, meaning meaning Hinduism uh, uh, is does not rest on simply believing a set of doctrines. It it rests on experiencing, and so uh, uh, Hinduism allows for people to express their spiritual life as they understand it, as they can believe it at that time. So somebody who is completely Vaita, somebody who's completely um, um, a dualist, I would never think of saying, well, you know, you got to get rid of that dualism and come on over to our side, because that is what they experience. And if all of a sudden I started moving in that direction, then that is that is where I would go. I would go where uh, where my realization takes me. Uh, and so I still continue with my, with my bhakti practices uh, uh, very much. And I do my very best to uh, bring those bhakti practices uh, uh, down from heaven, if you will, and express them in my daily life. Yeah. Like when my kitty gets cranky. That's what I try to, That's what I try to do. Nice.
Well, what that helps me understand is uh, even just on a practical level, sometimes when I hear Hindus speak about, well, even your example um, of, you know, God is in the flower, God is in perhaps the weeds and, and that in, I, I hear that expressed in different ways. Sometimes God is in, uh, or that flower is from God or that flower is God. And I'll, I'll sometimes hear Hindus interchange the language uh, different yes. times. Right. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, those are different th- in my mind, those are different things. And, and even within Hindu traditions, they are too. And yet they don't sit in contradict. What I hear you say is they don't sit in contradiction to each other. Not um, necessarily. No, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, you can get these distinct. And I guess the other thought that just came to my mind is, you know, even within the credi- Christian tradition, uh, you know, Jesus has this really important teaching about love your neighbor, love, love as yourself, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he brings into the equation this, we do love ourselves. And now his conception is still very, you know, much the Abrahamic. Um, so I don't think he's leaning towards a, 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 an Advaita uh, way of going about things. And yet I could see, well, even within our tradition, yeah, there's, we can love ourselves. And from a Hindu perspective, that self goes beyond me. It's, it's others. And yes, loving, yes. Loving myself, loving this wider thing that I'm a part of. In, in, the English translations of the Hindu scriptures, uh, the word self appears both with a capital S and a lowercase s. And when, when the, the word self is uncapitalized, it refers to what is called ahankara or ego. That's the small me. And when you see a capital S, that's atman. That's soul. That is that, that part. So uh, what the Hindu scriptures say is that if you're in a human body, your, your Atman, well, you are the Atman. That is the, that is the absolute you. That is the absolute possessor. In, in Christianity, uh, one often hears the phrase, my soul or your soul. So who is possessing that soul? Who, who is the my that has the soul. And in informal conversation, you will hear that among Hindus as well. Somebody might say, oh, that, you know, that song was so good for my soul. But in, in stricter conversation, when we really watch what we say, we try not to say my soul, our souls, or things like that, because the soul is the ultimate I or the ultimate you. Okay, so the, the, we are all soul, according to Hindu scriptures. And, but then a hunkara ego is on top of that. And so um, a lot of Westerners think that Eastern religions say this, that, that ego is bad and must be destroyed. And I think you might find that in some uh, Buddhist writings as well. We maintain that the ego, a hunkara, we, that we do need it. We can't destroy it because if all of a sudden my ego was destroyed, I'd probably just fall down on the couch and, you know, somebody would have to find my driver's license to tell me who I am. It, 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 we, we need a hunkara, but 
unfortunately in in daily life we we tend to be led by ego by the small self as opposed to being led by the greater self so that's that's what that means when when talking about ourselves so truly uh the the best expression of love thyself as jesus say would be to acknowledge that the small self is needed in this spiritual journey we are on earth we are in physical forms and we have to make the best of it but ultimately of course the 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 highest expression of love would be to love the capital s self hmm. interesting yeah yeah okay well that helps me understand some of those concepts a little bit better um John, where should we take this from here? I don't know where we're well, at time-wise I mean, or if there's other questions. We started uh, a little uh, later, so we, if you guys have time in your schedule, we could take another 10, 15 minutes or what have you if you want to, yeah. or, or we can wrap it up. It depends upon what you want. No, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine to stay as long as you need me to. Yeah, 10 or 15 is good for me. Okay, yeah, yeah. sounds good. Let's do it. Well, what, what follows, uh, what, what next? You guys had some email exchanges with, a list of questions and there's no way we can get to that in uh, 10 or 15 minutes. So. No. Yeah. We, we picked some of this up. I'm sure maybe in a part yeah. two, if we wanted to, to do that. Um, yeah. I don't know, Fred, do you want to, where, where do you, where would you like to go with things? I kind of led us into some of these large, these, these kind of no, deeper no, in that, the weeds that, on some of this. Yeah, that, that's fine. Uh, first of all, I would like to acknowledge, uh, I would like to apologize to anyone who is uh, taking part in this conversation online that I am the reason that we started late, but it was technical. It wasn't me just blowing it off. (laughs) You just had a problem uh, logging into Zoom. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, in our email conversations, uh, Darren, we, uh, uh, we talked about images and the, the challenge between not just Hindus and evangelicals. Well, well, this this part didn't come in. This is this is new. I'm just thinking about it. But uh, also, of course, Catholics and Orthodox Christians on one side, and evangelicals on the other. And I'm just curious uh, if you think that images would be detrimental to. Uh, encouraging love are, are, is is that something that is hard and fast for you that that there are no let's say in your home are there any images uh, uh, religious images that might inspire you to a devotional heart or yeah. or not are you completely fine is that devotional heart of yours just pumping right along without any any external aids yeah yeah it's a great I really, when you're posing this by email, I really appreciate that. It got me to really kind of think this through a little bit more. And um, yeah, it's true. You know, evangelicals and and Protestant Christians in general uh, have been very um, have been very suspicious of images, and that goes right back to our beginnings of of, a, of the Protestant movement, Martin Luther back in the 16th century, and some of the other early. Uh, persons who broke off from the Catholic Church, you know, one of the things that they were um, critical of were it was not all of them, but many of them were critical of the use of images, right? And so they would throw them out and they would 
tear up, you know, their tear them out of the churches and things like that, because they felt that um, they were being a replacement for God, uh, not a conduit for understanding who God is and uh, essentially becoming idols. And so there's this very strong teaching in the Bible in the old Testament uh, throughout the Bible about uh, idolatry and not worshiping something or someone other than, than the one God. And so that's where that came from. And I think that's stuck, unfortunately, in many ways throughout a lot of uh, Protestant and evangelical and Baptist traditions, uh, this, suspicion of images. And so I think even now uh, it makes it hard for us to go into a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, which sometimes have a lot, a lot of images, um, you know, let alone into a Hindu temple context or other Hindu temple, you know, that also revere and really use images. It it makes it really hard for us to go in there and understand what's going on because all we see is uh, this is idolatry, according to what we see in the Old Testament. This is what I've been taught. We should we should avoid. Um, and and I think there's a lot. Well, there's part of that that I resonate with. Of of I think, but not just a physical image. I think there's so many things that can indeed unhelpfully take our focus away from a focus on on God and, and become like an idol. And so I think there's a point to be made there that anything that, that would redirect our focus from the ultimate, uh, from God and, and, a, and a devotion to God uh, is, is unhelpful and is perhaps even deceitful. So, um, so I, I, I go with that. Unfortunately, it's led us to be really, there's like this dearth of yeah, images and art. I mean, I've got artist friends who are more evangelical and, and they, they are sad about this in our traditions. Like we, we don't have a good imagination. Uh, we, we, our imaginations are sometimes stunted. We, we can't see images as something that Hindus and Catholics and Orthodox see. And that is that, I mean, not all, but I know that, that I'm told from my Catholic friends that, these aren't idols. These are windows into a greater understanding of who God is. And it, like you said, it inspires devotion, inspires love, you know, and, um, and images of saints or images of Mary. Now, and I've heard Catholics too say that they love Mary or they love the saints. And there too, Protestants get a little bit wary. It's like, okay, are you worshiping those things? Well, no, not necessarily. You know, I, I hear my Catholic friends say, well, no, no, we, I can love my wife and doesn't mean that that's, that love has displaced my love for God. You know, I can, I can love both and I can love God ultimately and, and, but still love others. And so why not also the Virgin Mary and, and, and saints and, and love them um, as for what they offer and what they represent how they encourage me, how they inspire me. So, um, yeah. So I I think, unfortunately, we've done ourselves a real disservice as evangelical and Protestants uh, on on that line. Um, And I think there's a lot we need to learn from others within the Christian tradition and even, again, from Hindus even along those lines. I would say this, that, uh, you know, I host a number of churches who... 
uh, tour the Hindu temple. And that's one of the things I do is I conduct the tours. And I'm fully aware that this may be a subject that we will never really uh, uh, come to grips with or come to any sort of honest agreement with. And I'm okay with that because again, it's, this is who we are. This is who, who you are. And I believe that you, well, two things. First of all, you don't need images uh, to practice your religion. And there are Hindus who absolutely have no images whatsoever. Now, they're, they're not iconoclasts in the way that Protestants were. They don't uh, usually denounce uh, people who do use them, but they are so advaitin. They're so involved. They're so into the divine as one, the divine as all. And their primary focus, uh, their primary practice is meditation, not any of the ceremonies, that they just, they just don't have them. Uh, so that, I, I wanted to clear that up because it, it, people tend to think that if you are Hindu, then you got a lot of statues in your house <laughs> or you go to the temple that you, you don't need to go to the temple. You, you mm -hmm. can do uh, multiple things. Um, but when I uh, explain the statuary in the, in the Hindu temple to particularly Protestants, the Hindus, I mean, the, the Catholics, they're always going like, oh, yeah, they're just like our saints. It's like, well, no, they're not. But God love you for, <laughs> for trying. <laughs> uh, um, but I know that seeing these very exotic art pieces with multiple arms uh, might be really challenging for uh, particularly an, uh, either a mainline Protestant or an evangelical Protestant, uh, uh, you know, to take in. Uh, and yes, you are correct that like the Catholics and the Orthodox, we would say, no, it's not idolatry. But here's one of our challenges, especially if you are talking to a, uh, a first generation Indian American Hindu. If you point to a statue of Ganesh or Shiva and you ask what that is, he or she might say, well, that's one of our idols. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and this, because this is what they were taught by the, how do they learn how to speak English from the British? And what did the British call it? They called them idols. Uh, so now that second generation American Indian Americans and non Indian Hindu Americans, such as myself, we have a more nuanced understanding of the language. We're really encouraging people, our own people, not to refer to them as idols because we don't believe that that statue is God. Hmm. As what you said, it is a window through which we can, we can uh, uh, have perhaps a greater understanding because all of those statues have a tremendous amount of symbolism in them and they express the various attributes of the one absolute God that pervades everything. So, so they're, uh, they are tools, if you will. Uh, now that doesn't mean that uh, I think images can be a hindrance as well. It depends on how you use them. And if you wanna use them like a good luck charm, if you wanna use them like magic, then that could be an issue. And I'm, I'm sure that 
there are people who who don't quite have the understanding that that I was given about what they are and how they truly should be used, and and, and especially not transactionally. I'll I'll do this mm. so I can get that. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I and I and I hear my Catholic friends say the same thing. You know, I, mm-hmm. there's a what they would say is a proper understanding of of images um, and an acknowledgement that Catholic Church is pretty large and culturally diverse, and images may and do get used in diverse ways, in some ways that they may not themselves agree with. So I, yeah, I, I, I would that. I would say this uh, one time when I was in Rio de Janeiro, I went to a Catholic mass, and uh, so there was the mass going on in in the sanctuary, and then in the back of the church, almost like a vestibule there was a whole other thing going on. And what I saw there was nothing that my American Catholic friends would ever want to be involved in. It really looked like idol worship. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying it was, I'm saying it looked like it. Yeah. And the fact that the mass was going on, but they're, yeah, yeah, you, you guys do what you want to do. (laughs) We'll do what we want to do back here. It's more fun. (laughs) Right, right, right. Kind of as an alternative almost. Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's helpful. Gentlemen, we've, uh, we've been at this about an hour and of course we could go on and on and on, but uh, kind of, these are more digestible if they're in hour bits. And I think we've reached a good stopping point. I think uh, this is a great foundation to build on. I think we'd envisioned uh, four such conversations of memory serves, and this is the, the first in a series. And uh, I want to just thank both of you for uh, coming and, and bringing your experience and uh, your respect uh, for each other and uh, for respectful conversations. And, and it's been a pleasure just for me to watch and hopefully others who uh, have been able to, to watch on Facebook as well, this is obviously being recorded and we'll have it available in audio and video formats for others who watch it as well. So I want to thank both Darren and Fred for your, your contribution and conversation today. It was a thank pleasure you. to be here, gentlemen. It, enjoyed it much. I agree. Yeah, really enjoying this. Thank you so much, gentlemen. We will announce our next topic and the next date for the next installment in this conversation. I'd like to thank all our viewers and listeners for Uh, watching and and listening to the Multi-Faith Matters podcast. I'm the host, John Moorhead. Until our next conversation.